Hello, darlings. It's me, Yoko Oso, and welcome to another episode of Oso, the podcast, where I review a plethora of things that I care about. And I threw my phone over there. And so today we are reviewing Ratatouille the Musical, which was a um, streamed theater experience, and Circle Jerk Live, which was a more live interactive uh, streaming experience. So first we're going to go into Ratatouille the Musical, which, you know, the film Ratatouille itself, the ethos is anyone can cook. And, you know, this whole show kind of takes that concept and runs with it. You know, anyone can be a drag performer anyone can make a musical and it's you know very endearing it's kind of like what you know those shows like hamilton um makes them so endearing you know minus you know lynn memel miranda coming from a fucking billionaire's uh being a billionaire's son and so ratatouille the musical was created by this tiktoker emily jacobson who literally posted this like you know super quick uh tiktok of her making this like um singing the you know the the little theme from the show and like pitching her voice up a little to give it a little more uh characterization to it so she, according to her she was inspired by the new ratatouille ride at epcot which is not a new ride technically because it is a they are bringing this ride over from uh paris disneyland you know like the first time that anything was successful at paris disneyland they decided hey we have to have that in orlando um, and you know, she gives this opening spiel at the beginning of the Ratatouille musical, how she created it and how, um, you know, they're trying to promote different kind of creators in the space. Because when we think about it, you know, Broadway is kind of this very closed off kind of space. Um, it's very hard to get an in unless you already have an in. And these are a bunch of little DIY creators making this uh, show. And it actually was a benefit for the Actors Fund, which has raised over a million dollars in opening, literally just an opening night. I forget what the final night total is, but I mean, it is what, like, even some of the top grossing Broadway shows, they draw in like a solid million a night. And, you know, according to the playbill I have behind me, um, the show opened at the Brooks Ratkinson Theater, which is where Six would be playing if there was not a deadly pandemic in the world. So great. Um, and, you know, I'm going to go into different parts of the show. So the music really is was based on a bunch of different creators um, concepts. So like, you know, um, the girl uh, Emily started with that one little theme and like, it's so crazy like the, all of tiktok just saw this like little thing and just ran with it like they made like these little themes like oh a theme for um a meal a theme for um remy's dad um all these different little like themes and it's it's so interesting to see how this came together so well and a show so that's based on a similar conceit you know spongebob squarepants the musical is like done so differently um because of you know, with SpongeBob, it's these big. What they went with like big pop singers, and you know they have their own way of singing, of you know writing songs and singing. And it's there's a bit of like a lack of cohesion with SpongeBob because you know there's no real late motif like how you know Les Mis has motifs, and because it's all different creators. But with uh, Ratatouille, 
they managed to take that one singular theme that was sung by Emily and just transform it into this like um you know little like like a whole score basically because there's little incidental music and then there's um this these themes that reoccurred throughout the show you know that really ties in the the narrative so uh cleanly and you know it is also a basically an ip musical an intellectual property musical and <clears throat> a lot of the performances was this whole show was actually performed by a with a with an orchestra called the Broadway Sinfonietta, which is a whole collective of musicians of you know that are mostly women of color. Which, as someone that's worked in an orchestra pit, you know the orchestra even like performing and in the orchestra in um, these shows, there's still a lack of um, diversity and inclusion, whatever that means nowadays, because. Um, it's the visibility, I guess it would be, but it is still very important, you know, to see these kind of people represented in this way, you know, under the stage, behind the stage, near the stage. And so let's go into the performance of the show. Um, first, we have Kevin Chamberlain as Chef Gusto. And the characterization, I mean, getting at the ethos of the show, you know, there's a sentiment that, like, you can have a book and put it next to mine. It's so lovely. It's such a lovely point about, you know, getting to set aside your ego, hint, hint for how the show goes, um, you know, as a creator to set aside your ego to make room for the next generation of people who are going to outlive you in a sense, you know, because at a certain point it's revealed that chef Gusto has died. I, I know this is, there's like real, no real spoilers for this, by the way. It's like, if you've seen Ratatouille, the movie, um, which has been out for a while, then you'll mostly know the, the general gist of Ratatouille, the musical. <clears throat> but yeah. Um, there is kind of a point they get to about like, you know, gatekeeping and, you know, as uh, for a lot of young creators, there's a tendency to, you know, be a get a bit gatekeepy about things. And, you know, uh, the staging of it in some way felt a bit odd to me. You know, there's like this looking to the side, avoiding the, the camera because, you know, these are stage actors. These are a lot of them are stage actors or some of them are TV and film actors um, for some reason, the TikTok way of acting doesn't feel like, you know, it's like a new realm and it's kind of going to be like the inevitability of, inevitability of our future when it comes to live performing. Um, I mean, I'm titling this episode, you know, the one about the future of live theater and, you know, for the foreseeable future, you know, I've debated getting tickets to see shows when they come down here, even though in Florida, that's like a bad idea um, to go sit in a theater. And even in fall, I'm not sure how these things are going to go with our vaccine rollout and everything that's happening in the world. Um, but um, the way we have to approach theater now in this like kind of not quite new, but sort of new 
uh, realm of the live stream of the speaking directly to the camera is kind of going to be something that these actors have to really take into account. You know, um, you've got these newer, younger actors, like the actor that plays um, uh, Linguini, Andrew Barth Feldman, who is much younger and has probably uh, lived more of his life behind the screen than, say, an actor like um, Andre de Shields as Anton Ego. But and Andre de Shields does a fantastic job for this um, um, setup. And, <clears throat> you know, I think that while I did love Titus as Remy because I just love anything, anything Titus does, um, I and he was a very natural choice for this, by the way. And he really amps up Patton Oswalt's, you know, isms in this to translate it from the the film to the stage version. And he's a you know, he's a talented singer, but at the same time, I think that with him, he's very much like, acting to the side, you know, like looking away from the camera and avoiding the gaze of you know, directly into the camera, like as one would act when you're in a live stream, like this kind of setup right now, where I'm very much talking to an, a camera in my room. And who else is in it? Oh, Wayne Brady. Wayne Brady really committed to this role. Like he even had a little bit of the, the rat makeup that I have here underneath my regular shellac. Um, Ashley Park is Colette. Um, Ashley Park as Colette is like, is like a conundrum. It's, um, it's like the, the Ouroboros of like French accents, because I know she like filmed a whole year or so or however many months to film Emily in Paris. I genuinely cannot tell if because of it's so unintelligible that if it's a good French accent or a bad French accent, (laughs) It's it's truly Schrodinger's French accent. Um, and I mean, um, according to her Instagram, you know, they said that they only had about like 24 hours to learn the entire show, which is no no short order. But still, it's like. It, uh, Golden Globe nominee Ashley Park learning this show is uh, kind of bewildering. And so, as I mentioned before, Andrew Barth Feldman um, is playing Linguini and so he was um, one of the last Evan Hansen's in the Broadway production of Dear Evan Hansen. Um, he actually took it right before Jordan Fisher took over in like February, which um, now that Jordan Fisher's tenure is kind of over, um, whenever the show eventually does open on Broadway, you know, it's still very up in the air. But um, I think that he could really, um, he should take on that role again. I don't think he had nearly that much time. I mean, Jordan Fisher had a very short run on it considering that it was only a few weeks in February before the whole world shut down. Um, but I think that Andrew Beth Feldman as like, you know, he's, he's, he actually is 18 years old. Like he, it's so crazy to me because he actually, you know, they actually cast someone that's 18 this time. unlike the movie, Dear Evan Hansen, where they're casting a 30 year old Mark Platt who they're going to say, yeah, that's a, that's a teenager. That's what a high schooler looks like. Um, but he's just a, a wee bit there. And, you know, he does the whole awkward thing in the Ratatouille musical, like, very well. Um, Also, he's just joined the cast of High School Musical, the musical, the series. So, you know, I can't wait to see what song he writes about Sabrina Carpenter. (laughs) Have any of you read that? It's, It's the most tepid drama, but it's like, 
I, I'm so glad the indie girls are bringing back the bitch track. It, it's truly been lost on us since like um, Hollabat Girl, which was written about um, Gwen Stefani writing about Courtney Love calling her a cheerleader. The indie girls need to bring, bring back the bitch track in this day and age. Um, and one of my favorite, so I mentioned how this show was filmed at the the Brooks Ratkinson, and actually a lot of the ensemble was the cast of Six. You know, there's um, the main Six Queens, and then they're um, understudies. And you know, it really makes me wish that I was in a theater, not worrying about viruses, because it's so. Uh, Six is such a good show. I've I've watched you know the the preview versions that they they you know filmed for slime tutorials online and it really makes me wish i could see it because it's such a it's such a versatile show but it really um it's fairly well done i would i would have i would love to be seeing it right now and in the show the in the ratatouille they play the rat queens who are just you know this little ensemble of rats that go during the raid of uh, gusto's kitchen and another performer uh broadway alum who's in the show is talia suskauer who plays a journalist. Um, I forget what the name was, but I know it's, some, it's like something Germanotta, um, a little wink to Lady Gaga. And Talia Siskauer is um, a alphaba on the Tarcast of Wicked. And, you know, around this time, three years ago, Super Bowl weekend, um, <laughs> my friend took me to see Wicked. I was like, you know what? You're the only person I know who'd be free to see Wicked on a Super Bowl weekend. And, you know, I've seen her videos. I haven't seen her yet perform. I'm hoping. I think that they just either canceled or postponed the Wicked Tour again naturally. Um, so I hope to see her this uh, fall, maybe. Um, then one of the other main ca- characters who comes in, like, at the thir- the second act of the show, uh, Andre De- De Shields is Anton Ego. Um, you know, he's fresh off his run in Town. I don't know if he still is. I really... Really hope he comes back to Hades Town because that's the thing is like with a lot of these actors, their their runs in the show were never finalized unless the show is closed right now. Like you know, Mean Girls has finished its run, um, Beetlejuice finished its run, um, but Hades Town is I mean it's touring allegedly this fall and it's also going to come back to Broadway at some point. Will these big Broadway actors like? Andre De Shields, Reeve Carney, Ava Noblezada come back to the show now. Um, I mean, they could use the income eventually, but it's like, would they? Now, this show was directed by Jeremy O'Harris of... I have it right in front of me. Uh, of Slave Play, which I'm still working my way through this book. May review this at a later date. Um, but this show is nominated for a whopping 12 Tonys. Oh, he vaults. And uh, it's also co-produced by uh, Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley, um, who even they themselves make a cameo. Um, I'm going to talk a bit more about them in Circle Jerk Live. But yeah, they co-produced this um, and they co-wrote the book for the show. And it's so crazy because uh, Jeremy O'Harris is the one is like kind of the main reason how uh circle jerk got this like little bit of crossover appeals because um jeremy o'harris uh, was a financier and really promoted the hell out of circle jerk live um really bringing it to a bigger audience and i think when they wrote the the way they pr- 
translated the book of, or I guess it would be book, the script of Ratatouille the movie into the book of Ratatouille the musical. Um, I think it has the right level of like political satire and cringe that's like, you know, palatable for these audiences. I mean, it's it's Broadway. You know, Circle Jerk Live, which we're get, we'll get into in the next one, is like, that is a whole um, amalgam of like political hot takes. Whereas this one is a little more like, you know, it's Trump jokes. You know, there's Mary Testa say, as Skinner um, wondering why um, Remy, uh, or no, how Gusto has the son in Linguini and saying like, collusion. Um <laughs> you know it's it's those kind of trump jokes it's very it's very very light on them and thankfully it's like not a crazy amount of them because i mean we're out of the trump presidency now and <laughs> is it gotten better i don't know yet um and then there's also like these little like theater in references like journalist two four six oh one uh a little les mis nod and you know i think that Pixar itself is very predicated on, you know, the visual storytelling and the visual narrative. You know, they have, there's a reason why they do those little silent short films and why some of the most really endearing Pixar films and uh, Pixar sequences even are just like no words whatsoever. But I think with here, you know, it is a musical. It has really never been a Pixar musical. So it's like you have to do, you really have to translate the the storytelling of like the visual form to like this digital um actorly kind of way where you know you have to emote larger you have to express you have to you literally have to narrate like there there has to be a narrative in it um and the narrative is very um expository you know there's a lot of exposition from um from Titus as Remy, um, basically telling this, drawing the story along. And also as a producer, uh, Lucy Moss of six, uh, Lucy Moss also co-produced, um, six as well. And, you know, there's a little bit of those in jokes, you know, from six. I mean, they have on top of having the Queens there at the end, like in the bows exit music, there's like a little knot, not that says TikTok. Here we go. You know, instead of the Broadway. Here we go. London. Here we go. That they do at the end of the Mega Six, which one day I would love to see, <laughs> love to see in person. For now, I'm just gonna watch it on my iPad. Um, another thing is like the scenic design of the show. You know, this is filmed social socially distantly, um, in everyone's individual setup. So like, you know, they're either in front of a green screen or like a blank wall in their house. Um, very clearly some of it, I mean, the Broadway Sinfonietta had to record like at least the wind musicians in a studio, but there's like percussionists and like bass players and like their own little studio setup. Um, but yeah, there's like, they have their own little setups. And I think, uh, specifically, um, Titus Burgess is either in front is in front of a green screen, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, some people were in response to the Ratatouille the musical, you know, they've made these like, you know, these really impressive like puppets. These like, you know, like um almost like Lion King-esque puppets with like PVC pipes and like their own little costuming. And they've built these like really intricate set designs out of like shoe boxes. 
And like with this one, it's like, you know, the green screen format is kind of like a little bit of a letdown um, only because it I mean, as a graphic designer uh, by not by choice, but by living, um, you know, kind of makes you want more out of the, of the set design because you see it. And it's like I this is a stock image of Paris. This is, you know, it's very um, I, I, I want more. Give me give me more. As Britney Spears says, free Britney. Hashtag free Britney. Um, yeah, it just kind of left me wanting more, though. I mean, and there's also some choice in the editing, you know, where um, in a Broadway show, it would be like, you know, the bra- the performers would like be panting and like like free- frozen in frame doing one of these and like <sighs> panting because they just got out of a big dance number. And it's like, I feel like that's... I know in a show that's usually to allow for set changes and for applause and to, you know, really let the gravity of the scene kind of go in. But I think that when they translate it to the digital form, it just feels like it's it's like uh, Adam Lambert stopped making really awkward eye contact at me <laughs> and panting. Um, it's just really, it kind of feels awkward and I get it, but I think that as, you know, more, oh God, as more of these shows go along, that it's going to be something that like um, really, you know, re- reads or translates differently. And, you know, for my final thoughts that I think that Ratatouille the musical is just so cute. And I fit, and it feels like it's an actual, like almost like a pitch for, if this is a pitch for a real musical that I hope whatever funds Disney Broadway ventures has cut, unfortunately from Broadway frozen on Broadway, um, I hope they make this a reality. I would love to see it. You know, it's such a visual show that I can see these like large, like intricate set designs and these costumes and all this coming really to life. And, you know, a Broadway show is no, uh, nothing to battle lash at for an investment. Um, but I really hope that they do, um, make this a reality. Okay, and now before we go into break, I want to talk about my song of the week, which is Hypotheticals by Lake Street Dive. And it's off their upcoming um, next record, which I didn't write down. Um, But really check out the song Hypotheticals. It's a brand new song by Lake Street Dive. It's this really infectious neo-soul groove that has such a such a good energy to it you know i really love i really fell in love with lake street dive on their album bad self portraits which is this like jazzy soulful record roots record but um this one is going in this new direction which is you know kind of bringing them into the 21st century almost and i absolutely love the sound they're going for hopefully i'll see them again in the future um and it's got this really infectious pop groove to it that's just like it hooks you in. And it's something that I haven't gotten from Lake Street Dive in a while. You know, they're a talented crew, but the last couple records I've been like kind of eh with. Um, but I think that they've really kind of gotten into their own with um, hypotheticals and this new record that's going to be coming out soon.
okay, now I'm going to review a show that the New York Times calls a lot. This is called Circle Jerk Live. Uh, I swear, every time I read like a New York Times theater review, these people sound like the epitome of uh, prin- that Principal Skinner meme. Like, am I so out of touch? No, it's the children that are wrong. <laughs> oh, New York Times writers, uh, hire me. Uh, I'm not poor. Hire me, please. Um, so Circle Jerk Live ran for a few weeks on October 2020, and I'm reviewing a restream of their closing night show on October 25th. Now, I was introduced to this show by a very cool person in the Miami queer scene named Juan Barquin. Um, you know, they posted this full medium review of the show that you should check out for more insight through like a like a literary queer lens. I'm kind of going to go through the show in more of like a, you know, a theater, um, theater, not quite a theatrical. I guess you would call it like a socio-political lens. I really know my script and my material here. Um, and one I met because they curate a show called Flaming Classics. And one of the last shows really I was able to do in, you know, ever was actually a pre-recorded show um, for the PAM and uh, Perez Museum of Art in Miami. Um, and, you know, it was for Solange's When I Get Home. You know, they brought her short film to the PAM and for me, they wanted to get me involved because I was like, well, <laughs> we want to have a performance, a drag performance, but maybe not quite a live performance because, you know, these people can't get sound right. I love them to death, but they can't get the sound right. And they introduced me to this show, Circle Jerk, and it really has the, th- the three things that I need in a production. A commentary on cancel culture, musical theater references, and just queer Dadaism. And so let me give you the basic plot of it. It's winter on Gaiman Island, a summer retreat for the homosexual rich and fame-ish. It's off-season, but two white gay internet trolls hatch a plot to get the world turned on. Cancellations, meme schemes, and political and erotical flip-flops abound as three actors play out this chaotic, quick-change, live-stream descent into the high-energy, low-brow shit pit of the internet. Drawing on ridiculous theater conventions and sci-fi tropes, the show also features everything that's hot nowadays. Identity politics, TikTok, and radical ideology, and (gasps) gasp, a plot. Circle Jerk basically posits this idea of, like, you know, homo-nationalism and takes it to the nth degree. Like, basically, you know, we've kind of seen white gays become this, you know, massively influential consumer base because of a combination of disposable income and, you know, no children. It's really like, you know, what is it like to be the oppressor? And as personally as someone that works with gay men in a corporate environment, I can tell you that they are no better than corporate white straight men. They they all are, they all are the fucking same. They're all just as toxic and won't give me a raise, despite giving a little Latino boy in the office a $10,000 raise. But that's, I'm projecting. Um, you know, when uh, I was watching a, a stream between, um, where they were discussing, you know, the process of the show, uh, the people behind Fake Friends, Patrick Brez, uh, Breslin and Mike, Patrick Foley and Michael Breslin. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at names. I'm sorry. Apologies in advance. Um, and they talk about this thing, uh, this kind of concept of white gay myopia. You know, what does it mean to be a white gay man obsessing over anything and taking that really like 
extrapolating that idea and taking it like to this like really abstract um place and you know um when i think of white gay myopia i think of like you know um one of my favorite instagram pages that no longer exists sadly called neoliberal gay friend which is like kind of this like mirrored tableau of white gay myopia through like you know fake infographics about um doctors going to gay house raves or going to gay raves during a pandemic or um you know captionless curated clips of barrett paul shirtless diatribes about mental health that are really just trying to get you to buy something from them and so the show is produced um by michael breslin and patrick foley in this group called um fake friends which is this little collective based out of i believe brooklyn but you know it seems like they could be from wherever since their shows are um all you know um the, the the magical part about their brand of theater is that it can really be produced everywhere. Um, and so Michael and Patrick play both, all of the roles, except for um, Catherine Maria Rodriguez, or I was just going to call her Cat for his purpose. She goes by Cat. Um, and, you know, it's crazy how the show has such a DIY feel to it. Um, but when you read the full credits, it's, like, shockingly massive, the whole, like, crew that went into doing this. You know, it's, it is this collective between them and, um, you know, Breslin Foley, Rodriguez, and um, Ariel Seibert, who all met at Yale for grad school. And, you know, Yale is this very kind of coastal elite um, space. And, you know, being uh, naturally going down to Brooklyn, um, I feel like it informs so much of, like, the ethos of this show. You know, they chose to film even a space in Gowanus called Me Too 580, um, which is this performance space in Gowanus, um, which as a neighborhood is almost this like beacon of gentrification. And <laughs> if you want to know how gentrified it is at one point in college, I had to do a late cleanup for service hours in college. I know insane, right? Uh, so fucking whack. Um, <laughs> at a place that was once so polluted, they called it lavender Lake. Go the Gowanus canal was known as the lavender Lake. Um, and, you know, I would say that that's, you know, a late cleanup with a bunch of hipsters, you know, how how cliche, but clear uh, that's not where this ends. No. Um, afterwards, they had like a little smattering of picnic foods um, for, you know, us people that were voluntold to do this. Um, and they had those awful um vegetarian portobello burgers from the Whole Foods that are the physical embodiment of the word and uh, so what do i ramblings about um vegan burgers have to do with circle jerk well you know um the title of the show title of show uh circle jerk is a double entendre of both uh gay orgy centric implications and you know an entire community on reddit that has been described as a mutualistic serving others opinions or a career for you know self-serving purposes is it's like a it's a it's a quid pro quo for the lgbt um, community that has become so self-aggrandizing and really unable to have discussions with you know nuance like oh your feelings are so valid like everyone's feelings are valid like no one can no no one can be critiqued anymore and it's like the the strangest fucking thing to me especially if you if you identify within a certain with a, with a certain little gotcha then you're you'll never you can never be critiqued for being a shitty person ever again um, and that's the thing that this show does require a lot of knowledge of the modern gay vernacular 
And, you know, especially for me as someone that is a former resident of Brooklyn, um, who's lived in these coastal elite gay towns where, um, you know, it's insane to me that these towns are so fixated on these ideas of identity politics while at the same time existing as like these beacons of gentrification because, you know, they are, you know, actively pushing out a community that's been there for the longest time because of unscrupulous real estate developers. But it's okay. How am I gentrifying? I'm queer. It's like you're still white, Suzanne. So let's go into the, the dramaturgy of Circle Jerk. And it opens with this, uh, some really interesting weight music choices. You know, the first song you hear when uh, logging on to the Circle Jerk live stream is uh, Azealia Banks's 212. Um, or as she's known these days, Insurrection Bay. It's so fucking wild to me that Azealia Banks lives in Florida now. It's not that wild, but like, it makes sense for her character, for who Azealia Banks is as a person, you know? I mean... I escaped New York to, uh, to you know, avoid gentrification. Now the rent's fucking going up here. Um, and all these goddamn hit people live in Miami now. It's insane to me. And it's uh, uh, bad. It's like not it's not good, man. I don't want I'm tired of you people stay in Brooklyn. Um, but I mean, even thinking about Azalea Banks' Insurrection Bay. <laughs> She's such a provocateur in the LGBT plus community, um, you know, to make, say it lightly. But 212 is this, like, kind of perfect sentiment to open the show with. You know, it's just, like, this absolute club banger that I probably, you know, got shit-faced and danced my ass off at Macri Park at one point, too. Um, but, you know, it's realistically written by someone who uses the most inflammatory rhetoric for attention. Like, oh, God, I want to feel sorry for her, but she kind of just be saying shit. Like, Azalea Banks kind of just be saying shit half the time. And it's like, oh, God, don't do that. Yeah, the show begins with Azalea Banks. And, um, you know, the, the fact that Azalea Banks went, uh, has gone in its insurrection bay is truly... Um, the Freudian slip that this show can't even couldn't even predicted that we'd be in the the timeline where Azalea Banks is dressed as um, you know Capitol Hill rioters, and similarly, you know they use songs by like <laughs> RuPaul and other drag race celebrities like Alaska, you know, to kind of reference the opposite side of that spectrum where it's these very um, you know hetero friendly queers that are still kind of hostile to, you know, actual LGBT people. Emphasis on the T. And, um, yeah, there's also, there's also some tracks by, like, you know, the are very common, you know, um, provocateurs that also have gay fan bases like Lady Gaga, Cardi B, Whitney Houston, and, you know, it even has, like, these tracks by, like, future kind of gay, gay icons, like Dua Lipa and Rina Sawayama, who's... Guess who back in the house? Heels click clack in a bound. Fine, fresh, feminine child, 211, I'm divine, so heavenly gentlemen, sweat, lips down, cross the board, no doubt. Body like, wow, pussy button in this trap. Titty so pitiful, fish and queen, um, you know, there's three the three characters that are played by, or the three actors in the show, uh, Patrick Foley, Michael Breslin, and Kat. Um, 
you know, I'm going to zero down the line on each of character of the characters that are showed in the show. So there's um, the show's opened with a literal uh, troll, which is played by Patrick Foley, which is dressed in this disgusting body stocking um, with the padding of a, a true baby queen and this wispy little blue troll hair doll um, in this falsetto screech. And, you know, at, during the show, they kind of give the overarching, you know, plot that's going on um, as it's going on. And trust me, there's a lot of fucking plots in the show. But the main critique of this show is that, you know, it is, um, you know, rooted in like this 2020 Gen Z sensibility where, you know, we, literally in the past year, we saw like um, all these plots get dropped one after the other. And like, you know, the murder hornets very briefly in last year um, and the pandemic and everything else that's happened. Um, it, this show kind of is a mirror of the fact that we live in a society. Um, and, you know, similar to the troll, there's Jurgen, who is also played by Patrick Foley. Um, you know, a lot of this show was very much inspired by the 2016 election where, you know, the right was able to um succeed off of their ability to be entertaining to a certain crowd and no matter how you know absolutely nothing their politics were and still aren't really because i mean we're watching fucking ted cruz fly to cancun right now while his people are freezing to death um but actually is he even entertaining is ted cruz entertaining i mean I think that you're going to supposedly be like a directly like a Milo allegory, you know, it's like very pointedly Milo Yiannopoulos. And it's, um, you know, kind of pointing out how his charisma and his speech patterns when looked at objectively are horrifying, but his mannerisms are just so endearing. <laughs> like, it's not to say that I'm, uh, that not to say that I condone anything Milo Yiannopoulos has ever said or done. Um, but he absolutely has, he has the audience he has because he is um he has some charisma amount of charisma. And you know, when we think about it, like in 2016, um the the people on the left people considered on the left, you know, like um Hillary Clinton, <laughs> you know, they kind of did lack a bit of this pageantry. And you know, one of my favorite cities at the time, Broad's Broad, my favorite shows at the time, Broad City, um was really cringy about it and kind of reinforced how stuffy the people on who are allegedly on the left are. Um, and I think that's what the right wing really tapped into was being able to, you know, use their little, uh, use their pageantry to, you know, kind of galvanize an audience. And on the opposite side of the spectrum in the show is Patrick, who is also played by Patrick Foley, as the name suggests, who is kind of the straight man of the show. You know, he's this Catholic boy who's a Jurgen's boyfriend at the same time. And he's like a very much a normie character with a predilection for the mundanity of bands like Sixpence None the Richer. Um, and with Jurgen is his partner in crime, Lord Baby Bussy, who speaks exclusively in a vocal fry like everyone from L.A., and you also have Michael, who is uh, Patrick's best friend. And you also play by Michael Breslin. And Honey, with two N's, uh, play, who is a gay incel maid on the Game and Islands, obsessed with musical theater. I mean, he's even dressed in a fucking South Pacific t-shirt 
And his commentary tickles me. He's like, you're such an ingenue. I can't hit that also. He, but Michael Breslin speaks in a perfect, like, contralto. I can't. Um, then you have the characters played by Kat, which is Alexia, a, a pun on the Amazon Alexia, and Ava Maria, which is this AI generated by Jurgen and Lord Baby Bussy to dispel misinformation to anyone identifying as not a white gay male as in this like gay supremacist plot. And, you know, the fact that it's based off the Amazon Alexia itself is kind of a commentary on the, you know, the surveillance state. Um, the fact that your these devices are willingly, you know, propped into your house, um, you know, to spy on you for um how do I say this nicely? The manufactured consent of the state to surrender your data to effectively monitor you with um no warning whatsoever on what data they're surmising from you. And the other character played by Kat is uh also named Catherine, but it's also is called Kokomo. <laughs> Because it's a it's like a pre-colonial name. And you know, originally in the draft of the show, the character's name is Sarah Jessica Walker, which is SJW. It's very on the nose. And I think that what I love about this show is how they really they really boiled down these points uh, uh being a little having a bit more universality, uh, but all, it, within this microcosm of knowing of what um gay uh POC identity is. Um, it's really just made this little universe and it does it with such a level of nuance that I think that if it, they, they could have easily just gotten so ham fisted with it, but they chose, they, they, these choices are deliberate. Um, I mean, at some point she even mentions being Nikan Tlaka, which is this like indigenous ethnicity that, um, they claim while having no actual point of reference to. And it's kind of like this reference to how these sites like Remezcla and Me Too, uh, posit these ideas of Latinx and Latin identity that try to reframe a kind of mythologizing about pre-colonial identity. That's so, you know, alluring to be like, to have some kind of like community in, you know, and it's, or, and like just connection to this past, like I'm not, white i'm and i'm so it's such and such and such i'm not just a poc i'm an indigenous poc despite never having been to my home country ever <laughs> and it's like yes we can appreciate you can like you know try to really um deconstruct our past but at the same time this like reframing and this mythologizing just kind of comes off as comical half the time and that's what i think that uh kokomo really effectively does as a character um you know it is when we when we looked at when you look at things through this purely culturally relativistic lens um cultural relativism meaning like you know um approaching another society's um world through our own terms so like there's a really good article that i read in my sociology class called you know the the, the rituals of the nasarima and it describes like um you know the the family unit um eats its meals at a certain way it, it's like it's basically reframing american um life through because the, the word is just american backwards but through this anthropological um, totally relev relativistic lens that just comes off as hilarious once you get the punchline. Um, 
And I mean, as me, I'm personally someone with like my actual name is very pre-colonial uh, Philippines that can be traced back to long before the Spanish came to the Philippines. And when we think, even think about like Asian culture, there's the, you know, the, the, the boba liberal Asians, there's the model minorities and how Asian culture um, throughout his, um has a history as having this direct connection to whiteness and approachability, but there's also this direct connection between Asian identity and supporting, you know, the black Panthers movement. But there's, um, there's very much um, me trying uh, me for me to try and put my own experiences in these terms of like, Oh, I identify as a bakla. It's just, it's just kind of hilarious. And I mean, the and the show Kokomo and Ava Maria being played by the same actress is like so nothing but intentional because of Ava Maria being created to dispel this misinformation to the to uphold white gay supremacy through social media. And Kokomo, who's kind of the inverse of that, being this person who's taken in this kind of misinformation and like, or like, this, not even misinformation, it, it kind of is misinformation, but it's like a re, an intention, deliberate reframing, um, you know, because in the filming of it, I mean, the setting that they put Kokomo and Alex Eva Maria in is like various, it's somewhere between like a BuzzFeed video and a ContraPoints video. So in the production of the show, Circle Jerk was produced fairly on in the pandemic. Um, I believe that at a certain point when they hit March, when the whole world kind of shut down, they had to reframe, especially the third act, which is kind of apparent um, when you see the show and how its um, uh, its approach is. So, I mean, we're in the world where like um, Circle Jerk kind of was this is this mirror of what the world was going to be like it can't have there's nothing in circle jerk that could have predicted what has happened this year i mean like you have um we're in a world of like infographic re-education and you know gaze over covid the instagram page which is supporting the lapd for breaking up gay parties while um operating under the guise of information and you know wholesomeness in a pandemic and the race war plot via misinformation has gotten um, simultaneously more hilarious and scary because we've gone from, you know, um, Bernie is my Bernie Sanders is my misogynistic pot roast dad being, and that writer literally being paid by the Clintons um, to like Bernie Sanders have putting his mittens in his fucking pockets is misogyny, literal misogyny by these like boss babe writers so quickly. Like who needs the CIA when you have blue check mark Twitter? And that's kind of the point that the, the show tries to make about um, kind of at the core of the show, there's this idea that the left has this tendency to eat itself. You know, um, when writing the show, 
Michael and Patrick reference like Occupy, Black Lives Matter, etc. So how the the where the right really galvanizes behind these ideas is where the left kind of splinters apart. You know, it's like um, even in my local elections, I live in Miami. We saw two Democratic uh, long-term incumbents losing their seat because they, you know, wouldn't say the scary socialism word in Miami and where their right-wing opponents were able to like really galvanize and say, my opponent is a socialist. All the other two candidates had to say was like, and, but they refused to even like touch socialism because, you know, of of, uh, the implications in Miami of, you know, Cuban immigrants who think that socialism is this like, boogeyman and it's like no you were it's not just socialism bad in this country also maybe why was socialism bad in your country maria um and so like i mean and in 2021 we're seeing literally the same day as a massive like insurrection on capitol hill one of the biggest stories is the potential that jeffrey star was the marilyn monroe to kanye west jfk and that's the other thing too about this like commentary. There's a bit of a social commentary on cancel culture, um, where recontextualizes meme and social justice um, ideology in this way that feels so foreign. Like it's when I say cultural relativism before, it's like this feels like a whole anthropological study into 2020 through this like particularly queer lens, and you know. Um, there's this, there's a, com, a, a text from one of the creators that says, like, you know, the play is very well put together. Every character has been canceled in some way. Their pain is very real to them. It's so very it's so much a war of how people think in ideologies and what ideas are valid. And, you know, where I talk about misinformation, comparing like, you know, these really terminally woke um, neo-indigenous um, BuzzFeed or like... Um, culture commentators versus like, you know, someone like Miley Yiannopoulos who actively dispels misinformation. It's like they inevitably kind of have the similar ends to a means, you know, because even white people can say, Oh, I'm not white. I'm a Viking or I'm, I've got uh 3% um, Viking blood in me. And my ancestors said, let's kill all minorities or something, some shit like that. And it's insane to me because it's like, oh, it's insane. It's more just like the show kind of really does the the both sides thing very well. Like it's not like it's not like um someone just like, well, both sides are bad equally. It's like, no, they take a very nuanced approach into showing how like um misinformation on the right and misinformation on the left are just these totally separate but equal means to an end, which is just um, gaining this fringe, almost um, fringe ideology to the mainstream. And, you know, um, as someone that identifies as someone on the left, like, I think that they do, there is this conversation that needs to be had about what is identity politics and what is representation representational politics because when we think of identity politics in itself i've had to come to you know grasp that it's a neutral term that you know 
Kamala Harris, the girl boss, babe, in the office, you know, it's like she may be the first black Indian Asian American vice president and a woman, but at the same time, she's also incarcerated trans women for, um, <laughs> she's incarcerated trans women into men's prisons and used prison labor to put out California wildfires while paying them pennies on the dime. And, you know, where identity is in real, in real politics, we can, there's so much of this representationalism in politics that, you know, is so surface level, like Kamala Harris being vice president is not going to mean anything to the poorest, like little black girl on the street who is trying to find, um, you know, who's living in a shelter. Like this representationalism is so much of what we've gotten bogged down in that ultimately means nothing. It's just kind of, it's, it's performative. It's a, it's a performance. And that's the, what the show kind of really gets at in having these characters, you know, switch idea switch wigs and costumes and um really get to the core of is it's all performance and sadly when we come when we there's so much of these political commentators that even on the left like i personally look to people like crystal ball and you know at times kyle kalinsky and in and if i'm going to really think about like people who in that aren't you know white Dr. Cornell West, Nina Turner, um, really influential people who are on the left, and uh, Brianna Joy Gray, who are able to see past this, this like smokescreen almost of representational politics and saying and understanding how identity does play a role. And, you know, at the same time, it is also like this um, there's this need to understand that it's also a financial, uh, capitalistic underpinning of what keeps oppression um sealed in this country basically like like societal oppression under capitalism is cannot be discussed really without this conversation of race but at the same time these conversations of race without the understanding of societal under of oppression under capitalism is just neoliberal politics it is neoliberal gay friend and uh all these other um you know kind of what the show is getting at and they do really tug at the heartstrings of the understanding of empathy you know what draws the line between empathy and like sympathy with an oppressor you know because i mean not to say that you know you can identify you you probably shouldn't identify with a white supremacist but there's something that makes Jurgen not entirely this cartoonish character you know as much as i love musical theater there is a tendency of musical theater to um really ramp up the nuance from like zero to a hundred uh or a hundred down to zero like one of my favorite films is cabaret but the nazis and especially in the movie version get a little cartoony <laughs> And, you know, there's a, a history of this um, in theater with like, uh, writers like Jean Genet, um, where it's theater that makes you, that garners you to almost sympathize with reprehensible people. 
And I mean, they even have this quote at one point in the show. I really, the thing about the show is it's so insanely quotable that I'm, I had to cut down on how many quotes I realistically use from the show. Um, gay trauma makes good art. And that's really <laughs> at the core of, I mean, when we think of these historic art movements we, I mean, and what they mean throughout uh, queer history and through now, it's like the AIDS movement and Keith Haring and all these really influential um, people in the movement that today, I mean, we're seeing when we're seeing like these, when we're seeing gay figures who just are full on alt-right right wingers um, because gay people have gotten to that point in history where as both a marketable demographic, they have in the sense become an oppressor. And this show does take that, that idea very, very much to its, um, um, eventual end. And so, um, it does, um, it, in this conversation about race and like leftist ideology, um, they were inspired by, you know, this like little Michaela AI, which is like this ethnically ambiguous girl that exists exclusively on Instagram. Who's made by these two like white dudes, I'm pretty sure. And, you know, there's, it's also inspired by the, the discourse behind princess Nokia, you know, it's like, oh, she's Latinx, but she's like, she claims to be Afro indigenous or something while also being Latinx, but probably is not actually Afro indigenous. Um, Rachel Dolezal really comes to mind. Like the, these ideas of what makes, um, what makes identity in this way? Like, cause we, in the gendered sense, you know, and I've always had this, I've always tried to have this conversation with people. It's like arguing with TERFs online is such a waste of time because they'll come back to the same argument, which is like, if you can change your gender, why can't you change your race? And it's like, these are two entirely different concepts that I can explain to you in a Facebook post, Megan. Um, but read a book. I don't know. Something don't just, uh, I mean, I can, I can, I can say it's QAnon all I want, but frankly, it, it it's like you know, it's, it's it's Twitter as well. It's just why ban Donald Trump and QAnon from um, Twitter when Twitter just does the job for them? Um, I mean, there's also that discourse about like you know, um, J Lo being Afro, um, this uh, Afro Latinx girl from the Bronx, which is really not. Um, Doja Cat is a hilarious one to think about the fact that she like is in these fucking alt-right spaces as like a, a lighter skinned black person. And you know, the, the show kind of talks about, um, has this discourse about this verbalization, you know, I mean, the thing with the left is that we get, I think that there's a propensity to get so bogged down in the literary implications of race and ethnicity than the actual, um, you know, things about race because um we have so much discourse around like black fishing and black sense and now um these characters um these like little michaela and princess nokia are doing this like virtual blackface um you know it's kind of like the sentiment that they talked about where everyone in the future is ethnic but no one is black <laughs> because they've created these ai characters that just um that are so ethnically ambiguous. And, you know, that's the thing with, where it really talks about with identity. You know, it's like, 
Um, I've seen firsthand where people who really cling to identity politics, but no, you know, avoid any actual personal accountability will just use hide behind their identity to say that they're good and infallible. You know, there's, there's no way they can be an oppressor when realistically there are people who have used their societal advantages to be oppressive in certain communities. It doesn't just because you're something doesn't mean you can't be an oppressor. I mean, that's the thing with, with how this show frames gay people. It's like to think that, gay people can be just as oppressive as like, you know, these white Republicans, because some of them are, they're just, they just like to fuck men. um, Was not thought of like uh, 40 years ago in the eighties when AIDS was still happening, you know? And I mean, white gays have kind of like, you know, especially with their influence, they've kind of manufactured this consent of an audience in a way. It's kind of like this RuPaulification of of identity and culture, you know? I mean, even Alexia and Lord Baby Bussy speak in this RuPaulified appropriation of ball culture, where, you know, it's kind of joked upon when Patrick says that he doesn't speak in the white gay way to Lord Baby Bussy because, you know, he respects black women and has black <laughs> black friends um and you know i mean god thinking about that like new york times am i so out of touch review it just feels so smug and like it's like an outsider like i i don't think that you have to be white and gay to like laugh at the humor of this show but there's so many in jokes and so much of a cultural understanding that even i am like lightly grasping at because i am not fully a white gay like uh, and some parts of white gay culture, I think I just like I either find too reprehensible to like or just like really have not either studied that much. Like um, so much of queer literature, queer theory that is just like so. I'm still so new on. Um, but I mean, the core of it that I can really understand is that you know. The, the lengths that white gays go to when they get excited about things. If you don't know how excited white gays get about things, you're not going to get the show. And I mean, there's another quote from the show creators that says, so yes, this new play is a lot and the virtuosity of its frenetic pace is impressive, but sometimes a lot is not quite enough. When you choose to focus on the surface, you choose to inflict, the wounds you inflict may not cut deep. And that's from the, that's not from the creators of the show. That's actually from the that's from the New York Times review. And the thing is that this show is written by two white gay men and a Latinx woman and, you know, everyone else in their collective. It kind of and they all live in these coastal elite city of like Brooklyn. It dives into this certain subsect of this community and really hyper fixates on it. And it's a community that they're imbued in. And I think that. You know, as someone that left Brooklyn, you know, now that every New Yorker is also fucking coming here and bringing COVID, um, the show does seem like a lot. But I think it's because they do a lot with literally less because, I mean, you have this whole commentary on our modern identity crisis through fucking TikTok songs. And it's like they do. It's so I think it's so well done because there's so much they tackle in just this one um, couple hour show, three hour show. And it's really, 
from based on their experiences, based on their understanding of like referencing queer theory and referencing our, um, you know, showing that there is a precedent for everything that we um, th- can think of in our modern age that we too often assume is created in a vacuum. especially with referencing like playwrights like Charles Ludlum, all these actors take on multiple roles, um, you know, like a Ludlum play um, to re to, you know, in the age of social distancing, we can't really have these big productions with a lot of actors. Um, but it does also reference horseshoe theory, which is, you know, again, not so both sidesy, but it's kind of the it's really highlighting the hypocrisies of both. You know, I mean, I critique the left quite a lot. And I don't do that just because I think that Democrats are fucking stupid. I think that this country has a long awakening in in terms of understanding that that Democrats, as we know in America, aren't exactly like, you know, the most helpful people. I mean, we have a Democratic House, Senate, and um, President, and we have not gotten shit, really. ICE camps are still open. Um, they've, they're stopping um, deportations, which means even more people in fucking ICE camps. Um, and it's, an, it's really the understanding that, you know, there is a hypocrisy of both. Like, I'm tired of this punching down humor of, you know, the right, because frankly, it's, it is hypocritical. Like when we think of when we're seeing like red States, like Texas right now in a blizzard losing their power grid because of, um, you know, because their power regulations were, um, taken off of a national grid because they wanted to, you know, it's greedy. It's a greediness that comes from wanting to centralize their power into one thing. And it has, you know, bitten them in the ass during a, a natural disaster. It's also like watching, you know, living in Florida, Governor DeSantis has done bullshit and we're fuck. It's fucking terrifying to live in Florida. It's regular open capacity, everything. And the only difference is you have to wear a mask at Walmart. While at the same time in New York, nothing is, you know, really open. But, you know, Governor Cuomo has literally like, it's just come out that Cuomo has like faked COVID numbers and like has hidden a lot from the government. And while I don't think it's to the level of DeSantis sending the SW- uh, sending a SWAT team to people to a COVID doctor's house, um, it's still a level of we should be able to criticize Cuomo to the same length that we criticize DeSantis because they're both fucking evil. Just, I don't think Cuomo is running for president. If we, I, I guarantee you, in some fucking horrid future that we're going to see soon, Santos will run for president. He's always, he's already trying, and it's going to be so sad to see that. And you know, the even in the social commentary in the show, the on um, the hostility and the smacks of desperation from characters like Kat and Jurgen. Um, you know, they're both pining for attention and they both have different ends to their means. You know, there's that like, there's that what's your pronoun joke. 
like desperately from Kat, like, what's your pronoun? It's like, it, it's, I feel like it's not punching down really as much as it is just like highlighting the absurdity of how, of that kind of joke and how it's kind of become this um, neoliberal thing these days to like, you know, do the bare minimum and I go around asking your pronouns. And um, even someone who I find like ContraPoint said like, um, you know, kind of backwards, backwardsly, um, feels like it's outing a trans woman to have to say, to say like, um, oh, I go by she, her in these spaces, whereas like she, where it's like hyper fixating on gender while trying to be woke at the same time, you know? And in the staging of the show, you know, the, the first two acts are a little more like black box theater in a traditional setting, you know? Um, but the camera angles are a little more sitcom-y. Um, they're performed with, um, it's, and this whole thing is performed live. I don't know if I mentioned that it's performed live and there's these little elements of improv, you know, they even respond to little flubs and dialogue where he, he makes fun of the way he says Cole Porter. Um, the set was designed by Stephanie Osen Cohen and it uses this language of theater in a virtual space. That's such an, that's so interesting because, um, sans sitting sans, you know, actually being in a theater, it feels so alive as a piece, you know? Um, the live theatrical space is this escapist fantasy, which is ironic because you're literally being housed within four walls. And in the third act, this triptych serves as this claustrophobic framing um, that allows the ensuing chaos to take place as all three characters are like rapidly switching between costumes and affectations that was, you know, originally actually written for the stage. This whole this whole piece is originally written for stage and then moved to digital. And the angles really take this vernacular of film and TV, making it feel like so disorienting, especially um, even the choice to film the actors changing in between sequences. And that was deliberate. Like they said that every um, choice to um, film these actors in between, like in their like underwear and like their half wigs. I mean, you can see like visible lace fronts on these wigs um, can't relate at all um in the show because it's supposed to point out that it's it's trying to throw a wrench into the reality they're trying to curate you know again in theater there's so much of an escapist fantasy that's like um you know even within the little house you're in and you're in the fourth wall that in this show it's trying to break that illusion because in reality tv um what's so endearing about reality tv is the fact that you you get to see how the sausage gets made. You get to see a boom mic in the corner. You get to see um, a cameraman chasing down a Maury, <laughs> chasing down someone on Maury. And even in the post recording, um, I can't tell if this is intentional or not, but the editing seemed minimal because at, vo- at some points the audio cut kind of weird. Um, that could be intentional. I don't think they've really talked about it, but there's, um, it's so it's so well uh, captured, and I think that while it's this is a like a live stream performance, you know, they kind of contemplated like what makes this theater, and you know, this show really uses that vernacular theater, and also I think that it plays on this rich history of theater. So I've mentioned Ludlum, I've mentioned Jean Genet, and then you know, there's even references like more uh, modern theater, like they have a <laughs> they have this incredible joke on what the Constitution means to me. It's not a show; that's a podcast. <laughs> it just throws me for a loop. Um, and even Honey's commentary on the the public opinion always matters. It gave us the French Revolution, 
be more chill and turned Audrey McDonald from a lyric soprano to a daytime soap opera star is so it's 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 pure pure comedy and one of my favorite uses of musical theater in the show is when Patrick um spoiler alert um kills Jurgen to no one mourns the wicked I was fully dying and this is a kind of a hint at a future uh video essay for me but wicked I could argue is one of the most mainstream shows to actively tackle this idea of propaganda and misinformation you know um, are people born wicked or do they have wickedness thrust upon them? You know, are people these monsters we make them out to be or have they been given a narrative that's just convenient to hide an even bigger monster? And the fact that this that both cat characters are played by Patrick is really symbolizing the idea of this internal conflict, like personified, you know, killing the part of you off as is um that excuses bigoted behavior you know and it's like i i always hate the word unlearning i always hate these like new but millennial buzzfeed words like unlearning unpacking but it's like really kind of learning relearning i guess how to like stand up for yourself and like stick to your morals and maybe not date white supremacists i don't know um and especially in the show, like when Alphaba and Glinda's paths cross at this part in the show, I mean, it's it's like a in media res because it starts kind of at the end of the show. It, it watch Wicked. There's probably like a YouTube YouTube a YouTube tutorial slime tutorial of it online, and um, the the ending of the show is literally just Michael and Patrick dancing around to the Fosse choreography of hot honey rag from Chicago, which again is kind of another theme. Um, and Chicago is one of the longest running shows in the country. Um, but there's this core of like misinformation in, in theater with Chicago, especially where, you know, um, uh, what's her name? Roxy. Roxy has been able to, uh, been able to get out of jail and avoid, you know, being sentenced to death through a very, very compelling lawyer. And, you know, she's not, while she was able to avoid jail, she couldn't really avoid, you know, the public scrutiny. And so for a while that affected her career until she teamed up with Velma Kelly. And this final song, The Hot Honey Rag, after it comes off her nowadays, there's that line that goes like, in 50 years or so, it's gonna change, you know. But oh, it's heaven nowadays. Kind of speaks to like contemporary sensibilities of like how we perceive what um, is mainstream, what is the popular opinion in the now versus what's going to be controversial 50 years down the line. And it's really... Um, really ahead of its time, that show. And I think that's what's kept it running on Broadway so long. And, you know, it's something so endearing about this struggle, like Roxy Hart's struggle in that show, to control your narrative and control your future. And, and you know, not to say the Hamilton word again. So overall, I think that Circle Jerk is this beautiful, surrealistic tableau that is a lot. And it, it's because it does so much in a liminal space. You know, it's writing and it's framing is so disorienting intentionally to reflect the absolute zest of living in the 2020s now. 
and the rate that you know these new headlines are come and go in the world and our vernacular has taken on this life of its own Thank you so much for watching, listening to this live stream, to this podcast. I've been Yoko Oso, and this has been Oso, the podcast.